A prayer for the new year performed by Ethiopian Jews in the northern village of Ambober. This sound carries echoes of a unique history involving Jews, Muslims, and Africa's earliest Christians. The recording was made by Kay Kaufman Chalamet, today a professor of music and African and African American studies at Harvard University. In 1973, Kay was a young ethnomusicologist just beginning fieldwork in northern Ethiopia. With her tape rolling late at night, Kay could hardly have foreseen what that new year would bring. A cataclysmic revolution ending the 58-year reign of the Emperor Haile Selassie, sweeping changes that would transform Ethiopian society and a rising regime that would confine Kay and her new husband to the capital, Addis Ababa, separating her for years from the Ethiopian Jews she had come to study. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet with Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. And this is our story on today's Hip Deep Edition, Ethiopia Part 1, Empire and Revolution. On this program, Kay Chalamet illuminates Ethiopian history, setting the scene for a period of remarkable creativity between the end of World War II and the revolution in 1974. We'll also hear from Francis Falsetto, creator of the 21-volume and ever-growing Ethiopic CD series. These CDs focus on the dynamic popular music of the 60s and early 70s in Ethiopia. At first glance, this is a familiar story about the rise of popular music in post-independence Africa, but not so fast. For starters, there was no dawn of independence in Ethiopia, because the country was never really colonized. It went directly from an ancient Christian empire to a socialist revolution. More on all of that coming up. For now, let's hear a classic of Ethiopian pop music on the eve of the 1974 revolution. Mahmoud Ahmed with a brooding wedding song, Kulun Mankwalesh. Mentamir Nagarne, 
Stylings and searing voice of Mahmoud Ahmed. Hmm. George Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide's Ethiopia, Empire and Revolution. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. One has to think about Ethiopia in historical context because it is not one's typical African country. It had only a very brief colonial experience. Most of the country only had Italian colonists there, occupiers from 1935 to 41, although there were Italians on the Red Sea coast in what is to, in Eritrea from uh, the late 19th century through 1941. But going back way before that, this was a historical empire. Ethiopia had monarchs, it had its own trade routes, it was a a very um, sophisticated empire 2,000 years ago. It was historically independent, it had contact across the Red Sea, and in 332 the Ethiopian court converted to Christianity. So one had a top-down conversion to Christianity in Ethiopia, very different from the way that Christianity entered most of the rest of Africa, which was as a result of missionaries 1,200 years later. They were Christian before us. Francis Falsetto. Before France, before Hungary, before Russia, before England. From the early 4th century, they are still nowadays uh, Christian Orthodox. So it's a kind of backbone for the, the culture of this country. This is very, very, very important. Ethiopia is the size of France and Spain combined. It's a highland country with two-thirds of its territory above 6,000 feet. The closely related nation of Eritrea separates it from the Red Sea. Ethiopia's geographic isolation adds to its mystery, and one of the greatest mysteries involves the Ethiopian Jews whose music Keshelemeh studied. Did Judaism predate Christianity in Ethiopia? Well, it's difficult to know with certainty because early Christianity retained a lot of Judaic content. What is sure is that both religions were in the mix long before Europeans set foot in Africa. In 1270, there was the emergence of a dynasty that became known as the Solomonic dynasty that based its claim to power on connections with the tale of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon, their son Menelik, who, according to biblical tradition and Ethiopian legends, brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Ethiopia. So you have many, many oral traditions, many tales. I think that the historical weight of these traditions is less significant than their impact on Ethiopian culture, oral history, and traditions. And so you had the establishment in 1270 of a dynasty that did claim its Judaic heritage. And this was a dynasty that off and on, ruled really through Haile Selassie in the 20th century. 
hearing one of the oldest string instruments in Africa, the Ethiopian Begena, a large ten-stringed lyre. According to legend, the Begena dates back to the harp of King David. Perhaps he played it to celebrate after he smote the giant Goliath. The player here is Alemu Aga, who still performs today, especially around Christmas and Lent. But as Kay points out, much has changed over the centuries. There were continual movements of the center of power in Ethiopia from the north further south. From the original capital, the historical capital in Aksum in the north, you had a movement starting in 17th century to Gondar, and then finally in the late 19th century to the current capital, Addis Ababa, in the central highlands further south. We do know a great deal about Ethiopian life and about musical life, especially in the church, from Ethiopian historical sources. This is an African country with written historical chronicles, with written lives of the saints, with its own Christian liturgy in its own liturgical language, Giz. And it has a very proud history, and we know a great deal about it because we have historical records as well as oral testimonies. And we have traditions that survive until today. That ancient church language, Gez, evolved into modern Ethiopian languages like Amharic and Tigrinya. Just as in Europe, Latin evolved into Italian, French, and English. The Ethiopian church was historically at the center of Ethiopian culture. It was the site of literacy from the earliest dates. It was a site of political power. The church was important, and it has a magnificent musical tradition. The sound of the Ethiopian church rituals are just remarkable. Put yourself in an Ethiopian church in the wee hours of the morning. It's dark. There may be candles or lanterns. You have incense in the air, um, and then you hear the Ethiopian chant, the chant of the Ethiopian church musicians, who incidentally are also healers. They sing, they heal, they write sacred texts. They sing as soloists, they sing in um, antiphonal style, alternating with each other. They sing in unison, um, and they at times are accompanied by the sistrum, which is a little metal handheld rattle um, that plays rhythms and accompaniment. They are also accompanied by the booming church drum, the kebaro. It's remarkable.
Fast forward to the end of the 19th century, when European powers are vying to control African territory. Italy has established ports on the Red Sea, and in 1896, the Italians attack Ethiopia at Adwa. But the Ethiopians hold their ground and win decisively. After the glorious Battle of Adwa, many nations establish embassies in Addis, and rulers send congratulatory gifts to Emperor Menelik II. Francis Falsetto says Ethiopia's musical life was set on a new course when Russia's Tsar, Nicholas, dispatched a delegation to meet with Menelik. As a gift, he sent him 40 brass instruments and a music teacher. And uh, Menelik decided to use them as a, a royal music. In this sense, it happens in Ethiopia, a non-colonized country, the same thing which happened to the other African country being colonized. The European colonialists introduced army band. It's through the army band that modern music started. Because, yes, first of all, they play uh, marching music in the European style. But the local musicians, they try to adapt their own music and their own musical culture with this Western instrument. And that the way all over Africa, modern music, meaning local music played with Western instruments, start. As in many countries in Africa, music was hardly a respected profession. And Francis says that many of the earliest brass players were recruited from Ethiopia's southern provinces. People from these regions ranked lower in the country's social hierarchy. The musicians did what they could, but the brass band tradition didn't really take off until after the death of Menelik. Starting in 1916, a young regent named Rastafari ruled Ethiopia. And one day, he would become the emperor Haile Selassie. Here's Kei Shalene. Haile Selassie, just to be clear about the dates, uh, became... Um, emperor of Ethiopia in 1930, and this was after he spent more than a decade as Regent Rastafari. So he was one of the most long-serving emperors anywhere, and his rule is surrounded also with a great deal of oral tradition, of historical accomplishment, his famous speech to the League of Nations, and his face toward the West, which I think over the course of his rule, surely influenced the course of Ethiopian music. In 1924, Rastafari made a highly symbolic pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and there he saw something extraordinary. Forty Armenian orphans, survivors of purges in Turkey, were playing beautiful brass band music to greet him. Rastafari was amazed by this musician and immediately made a deal with the Armenian Patriarch in order to send them to Ethiopia and become the new royal music. And when he came back from his tour uh, all over Europe, he took them to Addis Ababa. Still nowadays they are known as Arbali George, means in Amharic, the Ethiopian language, the 40 kids. And uh, these 40 kids was with a music teacher again, his name was uh, Kevort Nalbandian. Kevort Nalbandian even composed the Ethiopian national anthem, which lasted until 1974, the year of the revolution. As World War II and the six-year Italian occupation of Ethiopia unfolded, 
European maestros like Davok and his nephew Nersis Nalbandian helped Ethiopian musicians to gain knowledge, skill and confidence. Gay Shelemé says a new era was dawning. Post-World War II, you have the triumphant return of the emperor. And the emperor during much of the occupation, which was over by the early 40s, was in England. He had very close ties with the West. So the period post-World War II definitely opened up Ethiopia even more to Western influence. I don't know the exact dates of the beginning of Ethiopian radio, Ethiopian television. These are surely factors. Also, the military base at Kagnu Station in Asmara, which at that point was part of Ethiopia. All of these are important influences. But I think World War II, if you look at the musical situation internationally, you have in the 50s the birth of rock and roll. You have enormous musical ferment. You also have the emergence of the LP in this period, which caused international commerce and transfer in musical sound. I think, though, in the case of Ethiopia, more important than the recording industry in that those early dates were just the flowering of creativity and flow, the beginning of flow back and forth with the West in musical terms. Francis Falsetto says Haile Selassie encouraged this dialogue. Upon his return from exile, he established not one, but many official brass bands. The Imperial Bodyguard Band, the Police Orchestra, the Army Band, and so on. And apart from the uh, military music, they started to develop kind of pop music, dance music, light music. And the, the real blossoming of that will be 1955, because the uh, theater Aile Selassie was inaugurated in that year. And uh, we can say that from 1955 until the fall of Ailes Selassie in 1974, those 20 years was the golden years of modern Ethiopian music. Starting in the 1950s, a succession of visionary Ethiopian musicians began to shape new hybrid sounds. One of the most original was saxophonist Getachu Mekuria. A traditional musician recruited to play in the municipal orchestra of Addis, Getachu interpreted customary war songs using his saxophone. These songs were called Shilela. A shilela is a cry to battle. It starts high and it descends. I mean, we should listen to a shilela. Better still, let's hear two. First one by an unaccompanied male singer, and then a shilela performed by a woman and accompanied by the traditional Ethiopian fiddle, the masenko. <laughs> Thank you. 
A shilela is a war chant full of pride and boasting. One of them says, At Adwa, my father was killed, bastard. Come closer and I'll massacre you, and your body will be thrown to the hyenas who won't even want it. This is the kind of bold energy Getachu Mekuria tried to capture on his saxophone. Here he is in the 1959 recording. It's extraordinary. Francis Falsetto on Getachu Mekuria's adaptation of Ethiopian war songs. He did that with a saxophone, and the result is it sounds a bit like Albert Taylor, and he started to blow like this by the early 50s, by 53, 54. Albert Eiler was a founder of the American free jazz movement, but all that was years in the future and far from the world of Getachu Mekuria. He himself he has no jazz culture. He does know nothing about Albert Eiler and the like. And, and the Ethiopian. They love this style of saxophone, not because it is free jazz, but because it reminds them the vocal style, the war song, the, the shouting style. Again, this is nationalism. Ethio Jazz, Asmaris, and James Brown of Addis Abeba coming up on Ethiopia, Empire, and Revolution. You can read our interviews with Keisha Leme and Francis Falsetto, see photographs and an Ethiopian discography on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. The 50s and 60s were a time of great openness in Ethiopia. Musicians began to travel abroad. A young man at the time, Maestro Mulatu Astatke, went to study music in London and then at the renowned Berklee College of Music in Boston. Mulatu moved on to New York City, where he played with Latin and jazz musicians and began to formulate the new sound he would call Ethio Jazz. Ethiopian music uses distinctive five-note scales and 12-8 rhythms, unlike anything Mulatu encountered in his travels. His idea was to bridge musical worlds. Mulatu Astatke returned to Addis Abeba in 1966, and he found the scene ripe for change. He spoke with us before a recent performance at SOB's in New York City. So the military bands were involved in modern music, and that modern music basically didn't have the touch of jazz music on it. It was a canon form music arrangement, which is like in 13th, 14th century. So when I arrived, I've uh, listened to all the music they were doing, and I was following up what the symphony was doing. So when I get there, I entirely change the progressions the voicings, 
capitalism concept, and I use a beautiful counterpoint. I was not using like big band, it was like maybe a trumpet and a saxophone, or probably two saxophones, and also uh, beautiful improvisations on those five tones, which expand the five tones. So that created a new direction to Ethiopian music. I had a problem at the beginning. It took me quite a while. Because, you know, I mean, when you try something new, it's always uh, strange to the people. It's something they haven't listened to. You just have to keep on playing, keeping on pumping it, and trying to explain and this and that, what you're doing, what you are, on interviews, on papers, on radios. But finally, you know, other bands to follow these ideas, other bands start playing it, and singers are starting singing with this type of rhythms and changes, and that's how it progressed. To give you an idea how far it progressed, here is a 1972 Mulatu Astatke recording called Dewel. Dewel is a kind of traditional bell, actually a stone slab hung outside a rural church. When hit with a stone, the Dewel made a sound that called the faithful to prayer.
The suave voice of Birma Beyene. And before that, Ethio Jazz from Mulatu Astatke. Both of these men were brilliant producers and arrangers. Mulatu would remain productive beyond the revolution. In 2005, his music got a boost when it appeared in Jim Jarmusch's film Broken Flowers. As for Girma Beyene, he moved to the United States after the revolution and was never heard from again. It's a pity, I tell you, because Girma was probably the most prolific producer of the Addis scene in the 60s and 70s. And by the way, the song we heard is one of only four he recorded as a singer. 
Okay, let's return to the world of tradition. Because long before there were brass bands or Western-style pop singers, most Ethiopians get their musical entertainment from musicians like this, known as Asmaris. Here's Keshe Asmaris are a type of musical specialist. They are of an order of musicians who share repertories. They play Ethiopian instruments such as the one-string bowed lute, the mesenko. Some play the karar, the six-string lyre, and there are also Asmaris who sing. Many of the instrumentalists also sing. And then there are female Asmaris who usually sing. This is evidently a very old part of Ethiopian society. They were at times traveling minstrels. Some were residents in the courts. They played everyday tunes. They played for entertainment. But they also had the ability to serve as carriers of the news. They could serve as political commentators. And they had repertories of songs that had historical content. Because of these repertories and because they were carriers of these traditions of the past, and because they celebrated Ethiopian heroism and Ethiopian history, they themselves became targets during periods of stress, most particularly during the Italian occupation of Ethiopia in the late 30s till 1941. The Italians made a very concerted effort to wipe out all of the Asmaris, these musicians, because they were sites of patriotism and they were encouraging people to resist the Italian occupation. And we lost many of the Asmaris during this period. That's the blind Asmari, Jamil Mahmed, accompanied on kebero drum and electric car. Rather like griots in West Africa, Asmaris have special powers and privileges. Part of their power for political commentary and part of their ability to offer cultural criticism, personal attacks, you name it, emerged from a quality of the Ethiopian language Amharic and also a quality of the liturgical language Giz, um, in which there is a system of double meanings. And this is called wax and gold. And just to give you an example, this is taken from the classic book of the um, scholar Donald and Levine, Wax and Gold, first published in 1965. And he has a very, very nice example. Let's take a little two-line couplet. Since Adam your lip did eat of that tree, the Savior my heart has been hung up for thee. So this is a couplet in which the wax, the outer meaning, is about Adam's sin and the crucifixion. And it actually, though, is a love message. 
in its inner meaning, and the literal translation of the wax is, because Adam ate of the apple from the tree of knowledge, the Savior of the world has been crucified for thee. But to understand it completely, you have to know that the verb meaning was crucified may also mean is anxious to be near. So a literal translation of the gold the real meaning of this couplet is, because of your tempting lips, my heart is anxious to be near thee. That's Tlahun Gesisi man Francis Falsetto calls the first pan-Ethiopian vocal star. Tlaun Gesese is the singer in Ethiopia, the voice, big T, big V. He started to sing at the Agarfekar Maber, meaning Patriotic Association. It was a kind of national theater. And uh, he was very young, about 16, 17, when he starts. But very quickly, he became the main soloist singer of uh, Imperial Bodyguard Band by the late 50s. And since then, until nowadays, he is the most beloved singer in, in Ethiopia. It's a kind of icon. In this 1970 song, Tlaun sings about the scent of the country, a form of nostalgia that some took as criticism of the Selassie regime. Despite the openness of this era, more and more people were unhappy with Selassie's rule. An attempted coup d'état nearly deposed him in 1960, the first in a series of failed coups. With protest brewing, it's no surprise that wax and gold double meanings turned up in the new popular music. There is a wax meaning and a gold meaning. The wax meaning is the apparent meaning, it's just love song. You can take it as a love song. The gold meaning is something else. It can be a protest song. Somebody like Talahun, a member of Imperial Bodyguard Band, was in jail in 60 after the coup d'etat because he, he had a song, Al Chalkum, meaning uh, uh, I can't stand anymore, kind of love story. I mean, uh, I can't stand anymore. She left me, I'm alone. In fact, I can't stand anymore of this regime. And after the failure of the coup d'etat, he went to jail for a few weeks uh, because by itself, the imperial bodyguard was involved in the coup d'etat. And uh, all the heads of this uh, imperial bodyguard were also pushing the band to sing double meaning songs, uh, uh, protest song in some way. Here's another wax and gold classic from Tlahun Gesese, Surviving with a Smile.
Official brass bands formed so-called jazz sections, smaller combos that would recruit singers and perform modern music. But Francis Falsetto says these singers rarely came from traditional Asmari musical backgrounds. For instance, the case of Mahmoud Ahmed. Mahmoud Ahmed was not born singer. He did not belong to a family of Asmari. He was just working in a nightclub where his father had a small job. And it happened that one night in the early 60s, the singers of the local band uh, was absent. So he said, can I try to sing with the band? And immediately his musician said, wow, nice voice. We integrate him to Imperial Bodyguard Band. It could go like this. The international pop music heard on radio and television, including broadcasts from the American military base in Asmara, galvanized the public. Up-and-coming singers like this one, Alemayehu Echete, took notice. You could find some Ethiopian James Brown, Ethiopian Elvis Presley, but always with a local blend, something special, which is they are not only simply copycat. Ethiopians are so nationalist, I would say, uh, almost chauvinist sometimes. So proud of their culture, they need to inject Ethiopian culture in the Western influence. And when you listen, for instance, to singers like Mahmoud Ahmed Wali Mayushete, which is probably the best example of, of this outrageously Western influence, when he sings a bit like Jax Brown, there is always something deeply Ethiopian. <laughs> with a shot of James Brown in the mix. American pop music was hot in Ethiopia, but you couldn't say the same for emerging African styles like high life and rumba. These days, Ethiopians are more tuned into African musical trends, as we'll discover in an upcoming Ethiopia program. 
Meanwhile, you can read our interviews with Kay Chalemet and Francis Falsetto and see vintage photographs from Francis's beautiful book, Abyssinia Swing, on our website, afropop.org. Emperor Haile Selassie knew that nightclubs, bars, and restaurants with live music provided a distraction from the troubles of daily life, so he encouraged them. Recorded music was another story. When Ama Echete, a brave Addis record store owner, launched Ama Records in 1969, he was actually breaking the law. But Ama thought, hey, is somebody going to kill me for releasing a record? Apparently not. When it finally closed in 1978, Ama Records had put out almost 500 singles and 30 LPs. In the early 70s, the Addis scene was hard to beat. Haile Selassie had made the city headquarters for the Organization of African Unity, and visitors came from all over the world. This is the city that Kay Shelemé discovered when she arrived to begin her studies of Ethiopian music. Addis Ababa. I went to Addis Ababa first in 1973. And it was an international, very cosmopolitan center. This is already 25 years, 28 years after World War II. But there were embassies from all over the world. It was the head of the African unity. It was a real site of African discourse and of international discourse, and this was true in musical circles. You had a very large expatriate community in Addis Ababa from dates well before World War II, and this very much shaped and influenced musical life there, from the Armenian community, the Greek community, there was a Jewish community, British community from early dates, and so on and so forth, French, and so on. Francis Falsetto says creativity and turmoil often go hand in hand as a long-standing regime nears its end. We can see in many end of reigns or, or, or regime a very highly developed artistic life, nightlife, as well as we had a swinging London that had a swinging at this with incredible parties, unimaginable parties, incredible fun when everybody was mixed, the royal families, the nobles, the rich, merchants, the bourgeois, prostitutes, beauties. You had beauty contest, Miss Ethiopia, you had even Miss Swing. I mean, it would have been a dream for me to be there, you know. <laughs> we know what you mean, Francis, and we thank you for giving us the next best thing in the extraordinary Ethiopics CD collection. Georges Collinet with you. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, public radio international affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW.
the amazing nightlife and popular music of the late Selassie years met its match when the revolution began in 1974, and very quickly life in Addis Ababa changed dramatically. It's actually quite straightforward. I mean, the revolution began, and by the summer of 1974, there began to be curfews. And for much of the early years and continuing into the revolution, one really couldn't go out at night. We would go somewhere for dinner and people would pack paper plates and we'd leave at six because all of a sudden there would be an earlier curfew. And then it was just simply a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. And this had an impact on clubs, on restaurants, on social life, had a big impact on the Ethiopian church and liturgical performance because many of the most musical rituals of the Ethiopian church are performed in the wee hours of the night. So apart from the overthrow of the monarchy and the church losing its traditional um, seat of power, losing its land, for example, you also had the very real impact on musical performance in many quarters because one simply couldn't go and hear it. With citizens trapped in their homes, radio and television took on new power, and musicians became vehicles for revolutionary propaganda. This is a wild story. One night, I was watching TV, and a revolutionary show came on, and it was about Mother Ethiopia being sick and then being healed by the regime. And there was music by Orchestra Ethiopia. And I saw that the show was coming on. I ran and got a tape recorder. I recorded it. This recording made straight off a television set turned out to be the only surviving record of Orchestra Ethiopia's revolutionary music. Early on in the revolution, there were a lot of Chinese who came in, and then, you know, there was a whole um, move that sent Ethiopian students out to the countryside. It was called Zemecha, and it was sort of like what the Chinese had done during the Cultural Revolution. And I think it also was a very convenient way to get activist students out of the metropolitan area, especially Addis Ababa. But there used to be broadcasts on TV. You would hear Chinese opera on Ethiopian radio in the early year of the revolution. Then the Russians were there. There were Cubans there. So there were lots of models for revolutionary behavior. And this also had impact on music. But I have to say, during the early years of the revolution when I was there, 
It was a time of fear. The revolution began, I would say, as a revolution of hope. Uh, There had been a famine in the early 70s. There was great disgruntlement with the emperor's regime. It had gone on a very long time and was surely past its prime. And I think most people greeted the revolution with some optimism when it began. But as there were subsequent coups and killings and culminating in the Red Terror in 77 and 78 when there were literally bodies in the street. I happened to be back visiting my husband who was unable to leave the country for three years after I left. So I was in and out of Ethiopia for the first five years of the revolution. It was war, it was revolution, there was the civil war with Eritrea. It was an enormously difficult time, people were afraid. People were fleeing the country over the borders in any way they could. Of course, these are the years when the large Ethiopian diaspora began to take shape. On our next Ethiopia program, we'll sample music created in Ethiopian diaspora communities and by musicians who have returned home since the Derg regime ended in 1991. No doubt, much was lost during Ethiopia's revolution. But Kay encourages us not to lose track of the big picture. I think that as we look back, we should not let our nostalgia for the past lead us to characterize a single moment as the epitome of a creative tradition. I think Ethiopian creativity was very active before that period and it has persisted since. It strikes me that we're dealing here with 2,000 years of creativity and ongoing creativity today, and that was a golden moment, and there are other golden moments in Ethiopian music history. By the way, Kay Chalemet recounts her amazing personal story of scholarship, life, love, and marriage in Ethiopia in the book A Song of Longing, An Ethiopian Journey. Highly recommended. And remember, you can read more of our interviews with Kay and with Francis Falsetto, find an Ethiopian discography, and much more on our website, afropop.org. Thanks to Kay and Francis for their help with this program. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research co-production for this program by Banning Air. Join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Paul Ruest. Benning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Akornifa Achia. And I'm Georges Collinet. Public Radio International.